you know, over the last couple of weeks, um, we've seen Paul lay out the call for followers of Jesus to walk in unity. And uh, last week was to walk in holiness. And if you can pick up from the three passages today, uh, we are going to look at the call to walk in love, light and wisdom. Uh, This is as we come to the close of our series in Ephesians, which I'll be wrapping up next week. Um, So uh, we we might be doing a little bit of a a quick bit through some of the passages today, Um, but we know a lot about walking in light and love from our series in 1 John that we just did just a few weeks ago. If you weren't here for that series or if you didn't catch up on that series in 1 John, all about walking in the light and love of God, um, then please, you can access that on our, um, on our podcast. Um, any podca- catcher, podcast catcher will suffice, and also on our YouTube channel. Uh, so the, the first passage um, that was expertly read out to us today, thank you very much, uh, was, was Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, and so it's being imitators of God. And this imitating of God is about all about walking in love, um, you know, it, it's only normal and natural for children to imitate their parents. So we, as the children of God, should be imitators of our Heavenly Father. And we're to inim- imitate God's gracious attitude and generous action towards others by love. See, the, the measure and model of our love is Christ's love for us. And He loved us to the extent of dying for us. So he, and, and His death was both an offering of worship to God, like the burnt and meal offerings in Judaism, and a sacrifice to remove sin, like the sin and trespass offerings. And we express our love most when we lay down our lives for those we love, particularly for God. I was reminded back in 1 John 3.16, it says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to also lay down our lives for the brothers. And that's a real positive affirmation to walk in love. But following that positive affirmation of walking in love, Paul then actually gives us what that means and he actually reinforces the message um, by showing the opposite of what love is. In verse 3 he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. See, all of these are are describing self-centered practices which are the opposite of love. Self-indulgence is the opposite of self-sacrifice, And there shouldn't be any hint of these perversions in our life or or in our speech. Sexual immorality, impurity, greed, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, 
All of these are inappropriate for followers of Jesus who should instead be full of thanksgiving since we have received so much. And thanksgiving is something that also edifies. It it encourages us together as believers. John Stott writes, All God's gifts, including sex, are subjects for thanksgiving rather than for joking. To joke about them is bound to degrade them. To thank God for them is the way to preserve their worth as the blessings of a loving creator. And we're warned against improper conduct, that people who practice such things sacrifice an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's obviously contrasting unbelievers with believers. This type of behavior which characterizes unbelievers should not describe us as followers of Jesus. And there's a sense of urgency in Paul's writing to encourage us to live lives of love rather than selfishness. And the way we live our lives should be different because we're saved, because God deals with us and our sin. It's a mark of being a Christian that we change to become more like our Saviour, a contrast to unbelievers who at their core remain living for themselves only. So walking in love means to imitate Christ and one of the primary ways we do that is through sacrifice. We're then encouraged to walk in light. Verse 7, Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are a light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. People of light, don't become partakers in objects of, of God's wrath by joining them in selfish, immoral or impure conduct. And the reason is that we were formerly of darkness, we were formerly of evil deeds, but we are now of light, light in the Lord, having trusted in Jesus Christ. And so the, t- the command to walk in light is as children of light. And the fruit of light are those qualities that characterize God's life, like the fruit of the Spirit. And these are opposite to the fruit of darkness. And so if we walk in the light, and if we don't want to walk in the light, we're not going to bear much fruit of the light. In fact, we might not be any different in appearance to a child of darkness. And it's a serious warning for us. Walking as a child of light, though, we will continually be trying to discover what the will of God is so we can do it and please God. Paul continues, he says, Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake! O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I wish this was the verse that those people who call things woke would be awake to. Right? How good would it be to be awake to what God's purposes are rather than what progressive thought is? Anyway, that's a whole other sermon. Um, Yes, so... Don't get involved in disobedient deeds. Instead, expose them because those deeds are unfruitful. When we bring the light next to evil deeds, it exposes them for what they are. And we shouldn't talk about them either. It's better to keep what the unsaved do in the dark in the dark and not even speak of it. On the other hand, when light shines 
on evil deeds, other people see them for what they are, evil. Paul is assuring us that God will bring evil to the light one day and show it what it is. He will himself bring all evil things to light eventually. I think of the conflict of Israel at the moment brought on by the evil actions of Hamas. They are using innocent people, innocent people as human shields. And their propaganda is crying out at the thousands of people who have died and they blame Israel for that. Who's heard that in the reports? They're blaming Israel for that. Now, if I'm looking at this in terms of light and darkness, I'm looking for what the truth is. The innocent people are being used as human shields by Hamas to try and sway public opinion against Israel. Exactly what is it though? Well, the light reveals that it is pure genocide against the Jews by Hamas and the Jewish nation and that Hamas are responsible for their own people's deaths by their own actions against their own people, many of whom are innocent. That's what light brings. And I pray that God will bring this war into the light and protect the innocent. That may mean completely destroying the terrorist organization, which is Hamas, so their evil deeds cannot continue. And we pray that God in that would protect the innocent. Since God brings all things into the light, it is important that we wake up and rise from the deadness that once characterized our former unsaved lifestyles. If we do, Christ will shine on us in blessing like the sun warms what its rays touch. So walking light means leaving behind deeds of darkness and sin and producing the fruit of light, the qualities that characterize God's life. You know, as I said, if you want to know more about that, go back to our series in 1 John. And then we are brought by Paul to this command in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Christians can walk wisely by letting the Holy Spirit control our lives. Careful living is essential to being wise and pleasing God. Someone who is a wise person is one who views and sees things the way God does. Now, I'm not sure about you, but have you ever seen a brick wall that's nice and thick and at the top has like sharp pieces of rock and glass and all this stuff sticking out the top? It's a bit of a protection from people climbing over. You've seen those walls, right? Have you ever seen a cat walking across them? They take every foot, every step with great care and caution and they can walk across this wall that to us would just shred us to pieces, right? But a cat can do it. They do it with extreme care, they're slow, they deliberately move and are deftly cautious as it places a one paw at a time, avoiding the sharp cutting edges. That's a good picture for us of walking carefully. We 
need to walk in our Christian lives like that. We can't go through a single day carelessly. We need to take every step carefully. We live wisely when we use every opportunity to please and glorify God. See, to be wise, we must understand what God's will is. Only after we do that can we please God. The will of the Lord should be our blueprint since he is the head of the body and the one who gives direction. God's will includes allowing him to control and fill us, being thankful always and being subject to one another. Wise people not only make the most of their time, but also seek to discover and do God's will. And here is how it might play out in practice. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God, God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we shouldn't let wine control us, but God's Holy Spirit. In Paul's day, wine was the most common intoxicant. In our day, any substance that controls our body should be avoided. See, because I always ask this question, If you have drunk so much that you are no longer in control, who is? If you're not, then who is? That's a really good thing to think of when it comes to alcohol. Don't ever take it to the point that you're in excess where you are no longer in control because then who is if it's not you? See, both wine and the Spirit are internal forces and being filled is is a passive command. It amounts to letting the Holy Spirit, who indwells us, control us completely. And we do that by trusting and obeying the Lord as His Word directs. When we allow the Spirit to influence and direct our thinking and behaviour, we will experience His control as long as we maintain that relationship, that fellowship with the Spirit. And being filled in the Spirit results in different behaviours, such as, and this passage shows us, the public praise of God through psalms, Old Testament psalms that the Christians as well as the Jews use in their worship, through hymns, song that, songs that praise the true God in Christian worship, and spiritual songs are all other kinds of vocal praise. When God controls us, we are joyful, and of course we all have our highs and lows, but our general attitude will be joyful rather than negative if the Spirit controls us. And we should also use these to communicate with God. Praise should spring from our hearts and our lips. Praise should spring from our hearts and not just our lips either. You're thanking God for all things. You know, it is possible to be thankful in all things when we recognize that God is at work in our lives for His glory and our good. And being controlled by the Spirit will also result in our willingness to be subject to other believers. When God controls us, we have a submissive spirit towards those who, like us, also revere Christ. 
And so having explained the basics of being filled in the Spirit and allowing God to control us, Paul then applies this to various groups. When God controls us individually, we can experience harmony in the home and in the workplace. And the first area he says is in marriage. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, let's, let, let, let's dive in. After centuries of Christian teaching, we scarcely appreciate the revolutionary nature of Paul's views on family life set out in this passage. So among the Jews of Paul's day, as also among the Romans and the Greeks, women were seen as secondary citizens with few or no rights. And here Paul writes of the different roles in marriage, as God in his sovereignty has ordained. These are statements of value, simply identifying the different roles. Sorry, um, yeah, so they are identifying different roles within the home. They're not saying one's better, one's more important, one's lesser, one's higher, right? These are a statement of value, that this is a valued role, but it's a different role. So as I explain this passage, let's see how I go at not getting cancelled. Christian wives, Paul wrote, are to be subject to their own husbands as an expression of their submission to the Lord Jesus. And he was not saying that all women are to be subject to all men, nor was he saying that women are inferior to men. People often misunderstand submission. Because the Greek term for submission has military origins, emphasizing being under the authority of another. It is a voluntary submission to a proper authority. It doesn't indicate inferiority or involve losing your identity or becoming a non-person. Some women fear that submission will lead to abuse and or a feeling of being used. But submission does not mean blind obedience or passivity. It means giving yourself up to someone else. Equality of worth is not identity of role. And submission means organizing yourself voluntarily to complete a whole. The word support is a really good synonym for the biblical concept of submit. A wife submits to her husband, she supports her husband when she voluntarily organizes herself so that she can complete her husband. Submission begins with an attitude of entrusting yourself to God. And the focus of life must be on Jesus Christ. The ability to submit comes from Him and submission requires respectful behaviour. And it, in one sense, you might say it rules out nagging, which is a little bit like having a duck nibble you to death. Submission means developing a godly character and involves doing what is right, never anything that's contrary to Scripture. 
Every Christian's primary responsibility is to do God's will. And so where a husband is asking the wife to submit in a way that's not godly, you always submit to Christ first. He is the head. The reason for the wife's willing submission is that God has placed wives in a position under their husband's authority, just like he has chosen to place Jesus Christ in authority over as head of the church, the husband's headship additionally involves loving, serving, caring for and leading his wife. These are all things that Jesus Christ does for the church. So husbands, we are accountable to God for our wife and children. Even though Eve ate the fruit first, God approached Adam first to question him about what he and Eve had done. The husband's leadership requires taking the initiative, integrity and serving our wife. So submission in the proper, is the proper response to sovereignly designated authority both in the church-Christ relationship and in the wife-husband relationship. So what happens when a husband leads in a way that is not in line with God's will? Well, a wife is always to do God's will. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Who, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, that each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So our duty, husbands, is to love. The word Paul used for love means much more than sexual passion or even family affection. It means seeking the highest good for another person. Husbands, we are to love our wives in the same way that Christ loved his church. And he died to provide salvation for her. He gave up his rights, but he maintained his responsibilities. The biblical concept of authority emphasizes responsibility, not tyranny. Love requires an attitude of unconditional acceptance of an imperfect person, not based on their performance, but based on their intrinsic worth as God's gift. Love also requires sacrificial action. It involves doing something placing our wife's needs before our own, such as doing something for her that she hates to do. Who here is the spider catcher? <laughs> right? It also involves self-denial, such as giving up something that we would enjoy doing to do something that she would enjoy doing. Who's watched um, chick flicks? <laughs> right? We don't always control the TV. Love is a commitment of the will. And the purpose, Jesus Christ himself sacrificed himself for his bride, was to present her in all her glory. 
holy and blameless, no spot or wrinkle or anything else that would diminish her glory. That's the example we are given for husbands to follow, to sacrifice for the ultimate good of the other. Since in marriage two people become one flesh, in a figurative sense our wives become part of our own body. So we should love and treat our wives as we love and treat our own bodies, nourishing them. That involves providing what we need to sustain life, including security, cherishing It involves lovingly protecting by watching out for and caring for someone. And this was radical teaching for the times. Jack Gibson writes, No admonition to husbands could have been more countercultural to the Roman, Greek or Jewish man. Instead of being the ruler of the household, he is to be its servant. The husband's obligation goes far beyond being sexually faithful to his wife. And in no teaching anywhere in Roman, Greek or Jewish writings is such a solution to the problem of disunity within marriage put forth. Rather than focusing on the rights of the husbands and wives, rather than providing financial incentives for the promotion of marriage, Paul drove right to the heart of marital unity by presenting the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as the model for the relationship of the husband to the wife. Marriage is something special to uphold and value, protect and cherish. We've celebrated one that has gone for 50 years today. What a special thing to protect and cherish. One of God's purposes in marriage was to provide models of Jesus Christ's relationship with the church. He leads, loves and serves the church. The church reverently submits to and is subject to Christ And when husbands and wives fulfill these responsibilities to one another, our marriages model the relationship between Christ and his bride. Husbands, we are responsible to love our own wife as ourselves. And likewise, every Christian wife should respect her husband. If we husbands love our wives the way Christ demonstrated his love for the church then it'll be pretty easy for our wives to respect us, right? And submit to us, right? It's a no-brainer, right? And where's the responsibility lie? Is it on our wives? You must submit, you must respect? No, it's on us. We must be the kind of person that she wants to submit to because she can see that we are submitting to Christ that she wants to come under the authority of because we have come under the authority of Christ, that she wants to respect us because she can see that we are earnestly seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's a big responsibility for us as heads of the household, as those in authority of our homes. That's our burden, if you like. But what a joyful one it is to be able to lead our homes to love the Lord with all of who we are. Steve Farrar summarized it like this. If I could define headship in a nutshell, I'd put it this way. Biblical headship for a husband is giving the best of all that he is to those under his care and authority. I would define submission in a complementary manner. 
Biblical submission for a wife is giving the best of all that she is to the one that is an authority over her. Several hundred years ago, Martin Luther described it this way, Let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let him make her sorry to see him leave. That's a lovely picture, isn't it? Paul then implies walking in wisdom by submitting to God to the children-parent relationship. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Are the kids out at kids' church? Dang it. Sorry, let me keep going. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. See, children express their submission by obeying their parents as long as their parents are not telling them to disobey the Lord. Children should obey their parents if they're still children living under their parents' authority. See, when a child becomes an adult, they no longer have to obey their parents, but should continue to honour them. Paul quoted the fifth commandment to stress the importance of children obeying their parents. See, honouring is a larger concept than obeying, though. It involves a proper attitude as well as appropriate behaviour and it comes with a blessing. It's the only one of the Ten Commandments that comes with a blessing. Fathers, as God's ordained family head, it's our primary responsibility to raise our children. It is not something that we just outsource to our wives or to the schools or to a childcare centre or anything else. It is our primary responsibility to impart wisdom, to set the tone for the home, to model the example of godliness and sacrifice, to be present and involved. One of the greatest sins a father can commit against his children is to abandon them or to not be present when he's around them. See, raising our children is important and something God calls us to do well without provoking or exasperating them, but loving them and guiding them appropriately. And Paul concludes his instruction on walking in wisdom by addressing how to submit to God in our workplaces. He says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleases, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, that he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with them. Do you know about one-third of the population in the Roman Empire in Paul's time were slaves? One-third of the population were slaves. Most ancient Greeks and Romans regarded slaves as little more than living tools. And I've worked jobs where I felt like a slave. And I tell you what, when you work those kind of jobs, it's hard to obey those in authority over you when you feel like a slave. But Paul says that Christian slaves owed their earthly masters obedience. Obedience demonstrated their submission to Christ. 
You know, here as in elsewhere in the New Testament, slavery is accepted as an existing institution which is neither formally condemned nor formally approved. It was just a present, terrible, sad reality. And so you won't find a more freedom-giving approach to living under the circumstances that you were in than what Paul writes here. He's saying, don't, not necessarily trying to revolutionize the structures around you, but trying to help you live in a way that pleases God within the circumstances that you find yourself. And we know that slavery is a terrible, terrible evil. And today, slavery is most um, prevalent in child trafficking and, and sex trafficking. And it is a terrible, terrible reality with millions enslaved today. So we need to be speaking out against that sort of slavery as well. But in this circumstance today, we can apply Paul's teaching to our workplaces. In our workplaces, we're to be respectful, take care to not make mistakes, be sincere and not hypocritical, and work as though we are working for Jesus. We're to be consistent, whether the boss is watching or not, have proper motives as a servant of Christ, and have an attitude of goodwill towards those in authority over us in the workplace, because God is really who we are serving. Paul reminded faithful slaves that they would receive a reward from Jesus Christ in the future, whether their master on earth acknowledged their good service or not. And masters or employers should seek to please the Lord in their dealings with their employees, even as workers should try to please Christ as they serve their masters. They shouldn't threaten their workers because our heavenly master doesn't threaten us. Employers should also remember that their master in heaven will not show favoritism to them because of their social or economic status. Earthly rank has no relevance in heaven. Our behaviour in the workplace as an employee or employer should be a testimony to the unbelievers that we work with. And through this whole section, essentially what Paul urged was humility that expresses itself in loving submissiveness to others rather than arrogant self-assertiveness. That's how we obey God and walk in wisdom. And so ends Paul's instruction on how we are to live. We are to live or walk in unity, in holiness, in love, in light, and in wisdom. So husbands, wives, parents, children, employees, employers, how are you demonstrating that you are submitting to God and walking in love, light and His wisdom? What are the things that you need to confess, repent of and change to bring into alignment with God's will? What attitudes towards your spouse do you need to bring into submission to God's will? How can you obey Jesus more in your approach to those around you? How can you produce the fruit of light in your relationships and conduct? Let's ask God to help us do that right now. Heavenly Father, we come to you now as our almighty God and we declare that we want to submit to your will. But sometimes that's hard.
that's hard in our workplaces when we have a terrible boss or we have circumstances that make us feel like a slave, it's hard. But Lord, I ask that you would give us the ability by the empowerment of your Holy Spirit to submit to you out of our will, to follow your will, and then out of our love for you to be able to submit to those in authority over us in our workplaces. Lord, in our homes, as parents, as children, as husbands, as wives, Lord, may we uphold our commitment to submit to you first and foremost and then out of that to walk in light and in wisdom and to love our wives, to submit to our husbands, to respect our husbands, to, to sacrifice for our wives as you, Lord, have sacrificed for us. May we humble ourselves before you so that we can fulfill the roles that you have given us to play in our families and in our homes. And may at all times we keep you at the centre of our homes, Lord, to give you glory. And Lord, we pray that in all circumstances, our conduct as we walk in the light would be conduct that is a great witness to you. Lord, where there are things that we need to expose that are of darkness and bring them into the light, may you help us do that where it might bring justice for those around us, where we can advocate for those around us. May we bring light where there is darkness and shine your light. May we not keep our light hidden, but may we shine it brightly, Lord, and, and be that witness that you've called us to be, that witness of hope, that witness of love. And may your light shine through us, we pray. In all things, may we uphold unity, May we live in holiness. May we live in light, in love and wisdom, I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. We've got one last song today. Um, 10,000 reasons. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. 